You know, life sometimes can seem uh, puzzling. And the Apostle Paul, uh, you remember back when his adventures were taking him <laughs> to uh, a town of Damascus. And, uh, of course, he was up to no good because at that time Paul had been a very religious man and thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting the church. And when Jesus called him to himself, he had a particular work in order for, for Paul to do. And I always found it interesting when you read through the book of Acts that God never tells him everything that was going to happen. He told him a lot as we're going to discuss today. But he didn't tell him everything. And he revealed his will for him a piece at a time. And I found in my own life, and you've probably found in yours, that God often does that. He gives it to us a piece at a time. So you got your Bible there. Open your Bible with me this morning, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 10. And of course, th the title to this is so obvious, is You Are His Workmanship. And I want to just expound on this idea of you and I, of course, are the workmanship of God. Uh, he's the one who is doing the work. And on top of that, though, he has also called us to do things that, that only he could do through us. And uh, he says this very clearly here. Let's read verse 10 together. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. One of the greatest hallmarks of the Reformation is what has come to be known as the five solas. And you probably know them, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. And uh, if you're wondering what all that means, it simply means you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. So you're saved by grace through faith Paul wrote to us, according as his word, it, it, it's by grace through faith alone. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, it means that in no way can you earn your salvation by the things that you do. You, you can't do it by works. It's impossible. God has designed it that way. He has ordained it to be so. You'll notice in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, that Paul pointed out very effectively, I think, just how morally and spiritually bankrupt we really are as a people, as humans. In fact, he said, we are by nature the children of wrath. Last week, uh, those of you who were uh, with us, you know, we talked about the issue of Pelagianism. And those who reject the Bible's teaching that man is totally depraved from his birth. Thus the prophet Jeremiah uh, said concerning man's nature, the heart is deceitfully 
above all things, deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? There are those who really think that man is basically good. Uh, but boy, you know, as I pointed out last week, you, you don't have to teach humans to be sinners. Uh, it comes very natural to them. And I said, if you ever challenge that, I, uh, if you ever had children, you, you'll learn real quick that kids don't have to be taught to lie. Uh, they, it comes very easy to them. And unfortunately, as human beings, sin comes very easy to us. Why? Because it's our nature, as Jeremiah said. It's our nature, you know, and, and you are, uh, by your own works or doing, you know, you just can't change what you are uh, because it's what your nature is, you know. The prophet Jeremiah, he said something very interesting, I think, in, in chapter 13, verse 23. And he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. You'll notice that Jeremiah asked two rhetorical questions. Now, they're rhetorical because the answers are brutally obvious. He says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or change his skin color? Or can a leopard change his spots? Well, the answer is obvious. It's no. No, they can't. They are, by nature, what they are. From the very core of their DNA, they have, they have to be what it is they have been made to be. Thus, Jeremiah is simply saying that the same probability that the Ethiopian or the leopard has of changing their outward appearance is the same chance that you and I have outside of Jesus Christ to actually do something good, which would be contrary to our nature of evil. It's impossible, in other words. So now, when you look at the futility of a person who tries to reform, and, and of course it happens Every year, you know, in the beginning of the year, everybody has their New Year's resolution. What's my New Year's resolution? And everybody wants to change something about themselves, you see. And so they go through these periods of reformation, personal reformation. But to watch them go through it or to make whatever changes that they think that they're going to, ch to change, it's, it's painful to watch. Why? Because the end result is always a train wreck. It really is. The Apostle Peter gives us a really close and up personal picture of what a person looks like. He, he talked about those who had escaped the pollutions of the world, you know, only to return back to them again. And, he's, and here's what he said. And this is in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 22. He says, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to its own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. You see, according to biblical hermeneutics, those of you who are Bible students, the sow and dogs are always representative of unbelievers. Thus, what Peter was saying is that these were people who had tried to do good. 
they had tried to change their spots, if you will. You know, they, they didn't, they, they quit smoking. And so they didn't smoke or whatever that thing was that, that they thought was evil. So they didn't smoke, they didn't chew, didn't go with girls that do. You know, yet eventually, as Peter says, they wind up returning to that very thing that they were trying to not do. Why? Because it's their nature. Now, you know, you know, this is why Jesus said what he did to Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. He didn't say it would be a good idea if you were. He didn't say, wow, it would really be cool if you were born again, Nicodemus. He said, you must be. You must be born again. The only way that a leopard can change its spots is if God, the one who created it, changes it. You know, there's an old saying that you can't turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. Well, it comes from this same idea that, you know, by nature a thing is what it always is, unless God intervenes. You know, when you add Jesus to the equation, well, then the equation does change. But in itself, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. You know, thus, it's absolutely essential that we understand that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We have to get that. You know, in, in speaking of our salvation, Paul declared that it's not of ourselves. There's, there's no law that you can keep. There's no list of things that you could do, my friends, that can make you righteous before God. It just can't be done. Salvation is a gift from God and we must emphasize the word gift when we're talking to people who are interested in escaping the judgment to come. We must emphasize it's a gift of God. It's not something you can earn. You remember in John 3, 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it's a gift. And gifts can not be earned. Can't earn them. You know, if you want to earn something, the only thing that you can earn, of course, is a wage. Wages are earned. But when it comes to sin, Paul said that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The beauty of God's gift of eternal life is that God extends it to you and me not because he owes it to us nor because we deserve it as Paul so rightly pointed out in chapter 1 but God has extended the free gift of salvation to us through his grace alone and grace for those of you who want something to help you remember it as an acronym it stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Or the basic definition of grace, of course, is God's unmerited favor. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. You, you, don't, you don't deserve it because of our nature. You know, Paul said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So God has extended it to you, not because you deserved it, uh, but because of his nature, and his nature is nothing but good. He, God is love, the Bible says. So he has made this offer 
of grace to you and me. You are saved by grace through faith. Now, unfortunately, in the time that we live, there's so many churches today who emphasize what you ought to be doing for God. But David, in writing in the Psalms, he, he asked a question. He said, what shall I render unto God for all the benefits that he has done to me and unto me? He came to the conclusion that there was absolutely nothing that he personally could do for God except to accept what God had done for him. Thus, David said, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when we talk about the free gift of salvation, you know, sometimes it's preached today and, and it's made to sound cheap, economical, if you will, for lack of a better description. You know, and it is free. There's no doubt about that. But it's only free to us who are the recipients of God's grace. But it was very costly to God. And we never want to forget that. The fact is it cost him the sacrifice of his only begotten son. I was spiritually bankrupt. You were spiritually bankrupt. We had nothing that we could pay to God. We had nothing. Yet the Lord purchased my redemption and your redemption. He did it for us. Thus, the psalmist said in chapter 49, verses 6 and 8, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in a multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is costly and no payment is sufficient. Man, that's the truth. You know, the payment of our redemption, it was costly to God. Man, there's no payment that we could ever make that would be sufficient. It's not even in the realm of possibility. It just can't happen. Thus, it has to be by grace alone. Here recently... We've been hearing about several extremely wealthy men who are voluntarily donating enormous amounts of money in order to help uh, in the many different areas, not only here in the United States, but uh, really around the world that have been hit with this present crisis. And that's a good thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's their way of doing philanthropy. Of, of benevolence, of helping others, and, and they're using their money for good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But regardless of the amount that is given, that they're donating, it can never purchase their redemption. Even if they were to donate their billions and billions of dollars, my friends, to the sole work of building the kingdom of God, if they were using all their money for something that was of a spiritual, eternal nature about preaching the gospel, it could never purchase the forgiveness of their sins. You see, God has given to you, my friends, 
that which you cannot purchase. Even if you had the wealth of the entire world. Now, maybe you remember in Job 36, he had a friend, Elihu. And Elihu asked Job, he said, well, will he, talking about God, esteem thy riches? No, not gold, nor all the forces of strength. Why? Because God owes us nothing, my friends. And he will not be a debtor to any man. Even the apostle Paul asked a question. He, he said, who has given to him and not been recompensed again? Man, I can tell you as a Christian, not just as a pastor, but just as a Christian. If I had to compare what God has given to me to the little that I have given to him over my entire lifetime, there's no comparison. God outgives us at every turn in so many ways, not just financially, not just spiritually, but I mean in every way possible. You know, there's an old song, Count Thy Blessings, name them one by one. And we sing it, but I'm not sure that we do it because it helps to keep in perspective how much God has done for us, how good the Lord is. Taste and see, the scripture says, that the Lord is good. And he is good. Oh, and I know there's some of you out there saying all the time, and all the time God is good. Well, yes, I know that's the, the cliche, but it's true. It's absolutely true. All the work that I do for God could never earn me a place in heaven. All that I could ever give to him, he has recompensed to me so much. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet so many do, don't they? I mentioned last week, you know, that I've seen on Facebook so many times Christians who were seemingly doing good things. And one stands out in my mind where this young lady who was a born-again believer felt a need to help feed the poor. And so she had went into McDonald's and took several hundred dollars and bought all these meals in bags and put them in the back of her truck and went down to the area of her town. And I believe it was in Los Angeles where there's a lot of tent people living on the street. And she was distributing these bags, you see. And the whole time I'm thinking... Who's videotaping this? Who's videotaping it? Now, she didn't stand back and say, see how righteous I am? See how good I am? See how generous I am? No, she wasn't saying that. But she certainly was saying it by the fact that she posted it for the whole world to see. See, this is the problem. This is why God, he knows our nature again. He knows that we want to accept the glory that only he deserves. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeding the poor. But when you make a spectacle of it, when you make an issue of it, when you film it, and then you broadcast it, well, you're not doing anything that 
Bill Gates or anybody else with all of their hordes of money do, except they're not claiming to be Christians. They're doing it strictly as humanitarian, which I have to admit I have more respect for. God will not be a debtor to any man. Thus, you have no place of boasting with him. It's not of works, lest any man should boast, Paul said. You know, Paul declared that if Abraham had been justified by his works, he would have some, something to glory in, but not before God. You know, if, if we could be saved by our own good works, if, if that were even possible, then we would be able to boast that we had something to do with it. You know, me and God, you know. Then God would be my co-pilot, not the pilot. Our salvation is so completely of the Lord, though. We are left with nothing to boast of in ourselves. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say that I had anything to do with it. He's sovereign. He's done it all because he loved you. Thus we say together, to God be the glory, great things he has done, not we. Because he has literally done it all. To him be all the glory and the praise of his grace, or as the reformer said, soli deo gloria. We are his workmanship. You see, my friends, it's not my work for God that has any value to it. But it's God's work for me that has the value. God's work for you that has the value. You know, we are his workmanship. I emphasize the word his. God is the one who is working in our lives on a daily basis. The work of God is doing in our lives you know, what he's doing. He's preparing us for the works that he has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now I have to admit, it is a comfort to me to know that God has my life planned. I, I, I'm, I'm glad for it. I, I bank on it. From the very beginning, he knew what he wanted me to do and to accomplish for him in the kingdom of God. In a time that he granted me on this earth. He gave me a space of time to complete it, but he's the one who's doing it. So I know that it will be completed. He's able to finish that which he has started. So he has before ordained the work that I should do for him. He's done that for you, just as he did for Paul. When Paul was writing to the Philippian church, he declared that he had not yet attained. You probably remember the passage. He said, I've not yet attained that for which he was apprehended of Jesus Christ. That is, when Jesus apprehended Paul on the road to Damascus, he had a special work in mind for Paul to accomplish. From the moment of his apprehension, uh, Paul would spend years in preparation for that work. I do find it interesting that when the Lord apprehended Paul, we are told in the verse that he revealed to him the things that he should suffer for the name of Jesus. However, we're not told if the Lord also told him 
of the glorious work that he wanted Paul to accomplish for the kingdom. But the apostle did speak of being separated by God from his mother's womb. So Paul had an idea that God had chosen him, as he has all of us from the foundation of the world, to do whatever it was that God had called him to do. We have a purpose is what I want you to get this morning, gang. God is the one doing it, but you have a purpose. God has called you to a specific thing. Now, we're often puzzled by the events that happen in our lives. I mean, there's many people today because of what's going on that are puzzled by what's happening. Sometimes we can even feel like the psalmist who cried out, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me or hearing my cry? I have a friend who loves to put together puzzles. In fact, he goes through periods of his life where he pretty much works on them incessantly, or he used to anyway. Have you ever taken one piece of a puzzle, just one piece, and tried to figure out how it fits into the whole picture. It would be almost impossible if that was all you had because you just don't have enough of it. I mean, if you don't have the picture on the front of the box, as you start to work on the puzzle, you really have no idea what that piece or where that piece fits into it. How does it mesh with the whole picture? How does it you know, what, what's its connection? You have no idea. But if you come in late in the game and somebody has put together the whole piece and you look down and you see the last piece and you see this gaping hole that looks just like this. It's very simple to sit down and go, wow, now I get the whole picture. Now I see where it fits. Now I understand it. I even said in my whole life, you know, for years, everything that happened to me, maybe you remember when you were a kid, we had those little books that was connect the dots. You remember those? You used to, you, you, would, you would go from line, to, you know, from point to point, and eventually as you connected the dots, a picture developed. Well, your life is like that. You know, as, as things happen to us, at the time, you might not understand it. At the time, you might even think that it's something wrong or cursed. Only at the end, when the picture comes together, you see the blessedness of the whole thing and of the wisdom of God's thinking in putting it together. Your life is like a puzzle, my friends. God is putting together the pieces of that puzzle of your life. And it very well may be that you don't understand, as I said, the present peace that God is trying to fit in to your life. You know, you may even be complaining about the present circumstance because you can't see how the peace fits together. You might even be wondering why God isn't listening to your prayers to remove the peace. You remember Paul prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh that God had seen to it that he got. He wanted God to remove it. He prayed three times, but the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes it's difficult 
to see how these things are working together for the good for those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. You might even be trying to reason with God by asking what good can possibly come from this particular piece you're adding to my life. Now, I got to be honest with you, there's many advantages of being an older Christian. And I am, uh, this October, I will be 62. And I know, you know, I have quite a few people in our church, every time I talk about being old, they laugh at me because they've got 20 years on me. And so they look at me as a kid. Believe me, I don't feel like a kid. You know, but when you arrive at this place in your journey and you're older, where most of the pieces of the puzzle have already been put together, the picture is then becoming quite clear. I can now easily admit that there have been many pieces of the puzzle in my life that I verbally complained about to God. You know, the pieces that God had prepared and the work that he had ordained that I should accomplish for him. I didn't see where it was headed at the time. I didn't like what was going on. Many times I didn't care for the direction which I thought the Lord was leading me in. I remember one time I had gotten very ill and I was just still a young man. I was barely 40, 45, I think, at the most and um, found myself on the brink of death, laying in the bed. And I remember asking the Lord, you know, the church, the Calvary Chapel at that time was doing very well. We had our own radio station. We had all the trappings of a successful church. And yet here I was laid up in bed and, and this sickness had befallen me. And, and I remember laying there asking God, I don't see how this could possibly be of any use. How could this be of any good purpose? And so things at the time I looked on as a curse, now I understand that they were, they were great blessings and they were necessary preparation. They were all lessons where God was teaching me trust and faith. Not always easy lessons, trust and faith. Sometimes emergencies would arise. Maybe you've experienced this where maybe you didn't know from where the evening, you know, the next meal was coming. I remember living one time and, and of course, we, we were poor. We had found our zeal. You know, Paul the Apostle said, I've learned how to be to abound. I've learned how to be abased. I remember one time when uh, all we had in the cupboard was ketchup and crackers. And, and uh, it's amazing how good that can taste when you're really hungry, you know. But sometimes you didn't, you didn't know where the next meal was coming from or when the kids had an emergency and money was absolutely needed immediately in order to cover the surprise, you see. I can see now as I connect those dots as God had put the pieces of the puzzle together that God was simply teaching me uh, his faithfulness to provide for our every need to just as he had promised in his word that he would, teaching us that he had resources about which we knew nothing. 
I remember one time when, after I owned my business and, and uh, hard times had befallen, not just our business, but so many, as we see going on today. And I remember having to make payroll, and I didn't have the money. And, and uh, you know, you don't want to tell somebody you can't pay them. And uh, I remember, you know, not even, I mean, I called the bank in desperation. I was going to take out a, a, a temporary loan and only to have the Lord come through at the end of the day with enough resources to pay everybody. And I remember falling on my knees at my desk and, and just really repenting that I had not trusted in the Lord that day. And I had failed that test of faith. I really did. I failed it miserably because I was trying to fix with my own endeavors what God had already fixed. I just hadn't been patient enough. So God was teaching me through those things about his supply and his faithfulness in it. It's difficult sometimes to realize that you are nothing when you thought you were something. To realize that you were not really doing God a favor by offering your services to him or giving him your best fleshly effort only to see it fail miserably. It's not easy to give up a good portion of your life to something that seemed to produce so little fruit. But now, now, later in my life, maybe later in your life, maybe that's where you're at, where we see the parts of that puzzle and as God has put them together and how necessary that preparation was for where we are at, for doing the work that God had in his mind for me and for you to accomplish to his glory. Now we see it. Now we begin to get it. In Ephesians 2.10, once again, he says, For we are his workmanship, or his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So you see my friends God is the one who is doing the work through your life. The word workmanship here in the Greek comes from the word poema. And it's where we get our English word poem from. Our lives are a poem that God is writing. And I realize that it's also a puzzle that God is putting together. And, and, and sometimes the pieces might even seem that they are ill-fitted. But I can guarantee you one thing. God is simply preparing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's sovereign. He's given you and will give you all that is necessary to complete that work in your life that he has called you to do. And some of you have found yourself in the later stage of life and you look back on all the things, the dots being connected in your story, the poem of your life, the puzzle that's going to make the picture of your life. And now you're beginning to see that in this latter time, 
that God is doing something of a miraculous sort. And he's doing that in your life, even now. He's writing and expressing himself through you and through your life that others may come to know him by the work which he has before ordained that you should walk in it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you that we are your workmanship. We thank you, Lord Father, that you are the one that doeth the works. And Lord Father, we are, we are but the instrument by which you would do it. Help us, Lord Father, to yield to your will, to yield to your molding and your using of this tool, this vessel, Lord. Help me to be patient in those pieces of the puzzle that you put into my life that I don't understand sometimes, Lord. Help me to know. Help me to be patient, Lord Father, knowing that you are simply preparing me for the work that you have ordained me to walk in. Lord, be with your people. I pray for those, Lord Father, this morning who maybe are listening, who maybe they've never been born again. Maybe they're still trying to reform. Maybe they're tired of the way things have been going in their life. Maybe now, during this time of crisis, Lord Father, they understand that time is of the essence and it is short. And Lord, they have taken stock in their own situation and it has seemed bleak because they're without hope. But Lord, we know that we have hope in you. And we pray, Lord Father, for them even now. I pray, Lord Father, that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes, Lord. Call them to yourself. Draw them to yourself, Lord. And allow them, Father, the knowledge of their own wretchedness that they might turn to you in repentance and be born again. That they might know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you so much, Lord Father. Be with your people during these times that we might know that your hand is where our help comes. In Jesus' name. Amen.